Tonight on Project Exploitation. The news spread slowly, almost casually at first, from one cop to another, from a police captain to a magistrate, and then it picked up speed and flew through the night, from the top to the bottom, from one end of the city to the other. Telephones rang shrilly. Lights went on in homes on the main line. Lights went on in downtown hotels, in homes and apartments, in all sections of the city. Men with suddenly stricken faces looked at worried wives or bored, sleepy girls. And then some of them took sedatives, and others took stimulants. And a few began packing bags and checking plane and train schedules. The lucky ones, the great honest majority, grinned at the news and went back to bed with the pleasant realization that heads would be rolling by tomorrow night. The big heat was coming. for that project exploitation bracket. Well, you're going to be looking a long time if you stay on this program. There's nothing for you here. Well, since you're here, you might as well join us for some late-night sex. You see, this here is Sex in the City, a broadcast where we talk film and the inky black heart that beats through their celluloid chests. I'm tricking Nick Cheney, and my partner here is Dan Babbling Brooks. Dan, what's the rap? <coughs> You had to bring the big heat, didn't you? You had to tell Lagana off. You had to bring the big heat, didn't you? Your cop friends thought your head went soft. You had to start a one-man mob war. You had to shine your bright flashlight. You had to make the front page bold type. So then they rigged your car with dynamite. Whoa, whoa. To blow, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. To blow, oh, whoa, whoa. You get the idea. That's some strange music. We don't get a lot of that on these parts. <laughs> All right, I'm done with the bit. Oh, yeah. It's like, hmm, you speak in strange sounds. What is this? No, I But your kids are going to love this. <laughs> that was very interesting music, Marty. I love that. <laughs> um, so, and I know you're a Billy Joel fan. So I was like, all right. Billy Joel time, baby. I was going to say, that was like actually the first one that I actually did know uh, pretty instantaneously. So, Oh, good, good. appreciate it. It really wrote itself. I mean, it's like, I mean, that's such a great song and it's got such a percussive uh, melody 
that you know you can put some you can put a lot of different things there and it all sounds decent you sure can mm-hmm. oh well if you uh couldn't already tell this is uh something a little different this is as i said up at the top sex and the city where we talk about film noirs you may be asking yourself where is project exploitation i don't know mm-hmm. i don't know where it went but uh i'm sure it'll be back mm-hmm. so uh don't you worry your pretty little head about it baby okay <laughs> it'll all everything gets a return baby everything comes back around and right now it's just off in the ether and you know but it'll yeah. it'll materialize again by the way dan has anyone ever called you babbling brooks before Oddly, no. Um, although, of course, I'm familiar with the phrase. Um, but I think my sister might have gotten that moniker in like junior high. Oh, see, that's just mean. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't very affectionate. I mean, when you do it, it's affectionate. So I actually thought it was funny. I was gonna say we're we're both adults here, and you like to talk. So uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, do I though? <laughs> you noticed it, did you? <laughs> I was gonna say. Well, if if you didn't know it already, you'll learn it by the end of tonight because we are discussing the big heat, which is one of Dan Babley Brooks' favorites. Yes. Uh, let me drop a little bit of info on the movie before we kick it to you, Dan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are discussing The Big Heat, released in 1953, directed by the incomparable Fritz Lang mm-hmm. uh, in an American production. And of course, we'll get into the subtle shades of Lang. Uh, but the cast is uh, comprised of Glenn Ford as Dave Banyan. Gloria Graham as Debbie Marsh, Jocelyn Brando, that's correct, Marlon's sister, that's right. as Katie Banyan, uh, Alexander Scorby as Mike Lagana, Lee Marvin as Vince Stone, Jeanette Nolan as Bertha Duncan, and uh, we've got rounding out the pair of Peter Whitney as Tierney and Willis Boucher as Lieutenant Ted Wilkes. And uh, just a brief little synopsis here. And I will say, normally I don't care about this, but there are slight spoilers uh, in this synopsis in the same way that if you were to write a synopsis about Psycho, you know, what happens in the first (laughs) 30 minutes or so is almost spoilery because of the uh, suddenness of the event. So if you haven't watched it, we just totally recommend you go watch it and then uh, come right back. But if it's been a while, or if you're uh, if you're lazy like me sometimes, uh, and you don't care, then here we go with the synopsis. Uh, Dave Banyan is an upright cop on the trail of a vicious gang he suspects holds power over the police force. Banyan is tipped off after a colleague's suicide, and his fellow officers' suspicious silence lead him to believe that they are on the gangster's payroll. When a bomb meant for him kills his wife instead... Banyan becomes a furious force of vengeance and justice, aided along the way by the gangster's spurned girlfriend, Debbie. As Banyan and Debbie fall further and further into the gangland's insidious and brutal trap, they must use any means necessary, including murder, to get to the truth. That's pretty damn good. That's a really good synopsis. Yeah, yeah. yeah when I read that, I, I completely agree. So, hmm. Dan Jeremy Brooks... Not bad one. That is not your legal name. Uh, you could use whatever all, alternately. It's totally fine. Just back, you know, whatever. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? I'll just change it out every yeah, once in a while. Be fun. You were the inspiration for this episode. And, of course, because you were the inspiration for this episode, you were kind of the inspiration uh, for this 
new turn of events that may become a recurring thing here on the Project Exploitation podcast. So uh, don't adjust your dial. We did that for you <laughs> earlier. And yeah, uh, right. when we take another detour, we will uh, point you in the right direction. So mm-hmm. Dan, you chose this film because it's wonderful. Why don't you start us off? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have to admit, I, I hope um, this does become a reoccurring beloved segment, if you will, because um, there's so much uh, from this period. It's such a rich time for film noir. Um, and it actually, it does occur to me, though, that this is Projectploitation's first, honest to God, film noir. I mean, it's sex and this is the city, but it's also our first flat out noir, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess Bad Girls Go to Hell it has a little of that feel in the grittiness, but it's also a nudie cutie. Honestly, it's probably the only thing that film noirs are missing, in my opinion. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. I would agree. So a little bit about Fritz Lang. Um, I've got a funny quote here from Mark Svetten, who uh, writes for this thing called the Film Noir Sentinel. It's, I think it comes out like twice a year. It's, it's a PDF only, but it's like just all about film noir. I mean, it's like, and these guys, they write in a very energetic, fun style. And they, they're reviewing everything. They're interviewing anybody still alive. It's, it's pretty great. But he said, uh, he said about Lang, he says, Mixing unusual angles with bizarre close-ups, Lang employed an arsenal of unique shots as he ordered take after take, exasperating his collaborators and treating his actors like scenery. His crews were always on the verge of mutiny. Lang was known in Hollywood as the man with the monocle, the epitome of the German emigre. So... That's a pretty good way to describe his U.S. years. Um, one thing that was interesting, I didn't really, I mean, I kind of knew it, but I didn't really know much about it until a few weeks ago, was that his wife, who was also a, a major collaborator of his, uh, Thea von Harbu, um, I mean, she was like a major screenwriter. I mean, she wrote, she co-wrote Metropolis with him and M. And two of the uh, uh, Dr. Mabuse films, you oh, know, yeah. and that whole epic uh, German Nibelungen film, it's the rings of the Nibelungen, you know, with the thing about uh, all that. And she wrote like other screenplays for like Murnau and Carl Dreyer. I mean, she was in demand. Unfortunately, she turned into a Nazi when Hitler ascended to the chancellorship in 33 and she ended up like writing or directing some 20 Nazi propaganda films and Fritz Lang was like, yeah, see you later. And that was basically it. I mean, I think their relationship was a little estranged already, but then that kind of pushed it, you know, over. Yeah, usually that doesn't just come out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh, I have another quote here from uh, Lade Eisner, who is um, a really a very good friend of Fritz Lang's, but she was also a very good critic and author. And she said that Fritz Lang was blessed with an infallible instinct for capturing the atmosphere of the country in which he was working, uh, you know, whether in Germany or the U.S. And it is striking how he was able to take these elements of German expressionism, which, I mean, he essentially, he didn't invent them all by himself, but he, he, he very, he was definitely one of the prime movers in the creation of that. And him coming over here and essentially applying that to the, the beginnings of post-war film noir, it's amazing how well they fit together. It's, you know, hand in glove. Uh, and there's a lot of the same obsessions, the stuff like, 
I don't know. There's a lot about staircases. Like you'll see like spiraling stairs and people are like trapped on this, you know what I mean? Under the banister. Uh, there's a lot of stuff with mirrors and shadows, of course. But um, I have to say, I was, I didn't realize he had done quite as many American films as he did. You know, I think for a long time, it was considered, well, his American films are kind of crap, but his German films are the, where it's at. And now, I mean, there were people who didn't think that. I mean, like Francois Truffaut of uh, Cahir de Cinema. I mean, he was like, oh, the American films are superior. Here's why. I mean, he wrote a glowing review for The Big Heat. <laughs> and he also took some critics to task. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was pretty funny. I mean, basically, he was saying they were almost senile or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, as time has gone on, his American movies have gotten a much bigger reputation. And Big Heat is definitely like, you know, up in the up in the front there. You know, I was reading these interviews uh, Fritz Lang did with Peter Boganovich, you know, in the mid 60s. And uh, he said that. Basically, Fritz Lang just said, if he had to kind of explain what the themes in all his movies are, he said it's hate, murder, and revenge, and the fight against fate, and revenge is a bitter and evil fruit. And I think that's absolutely correct. I think, well, well. first let me ask you a question. Me or the audience? Well, you, I guess, because I honestly, okay. I mean, it's kind of a long question, but okay, so I've been wondering... I'm trying to think how often a character like Dave Banyan had appeared in American films prior to this movie, which is 1953. Like, you had, like, anti-heroes, right? You had James Cagney characters, like in White Heat and um, uh, The Public Enemy and stuff like that. And then you had, like, tragic heroes like Kane, you know, or like uh, Paul Muni and I'm a fugitive from chain gang, but that's all like more like about circumstance and like mostly a good person who has a tragic flaw and then you've got, like, then you always had, like, there were corrupt cops in movies, although quite a bit less after the Hays Code came in. But those guys were always punished. They always got their comeups, and they were never main characters. I can't think of anybody like Dave Banyan. He's a decent, super honest policeman uh, and family man. And he suddenly, you know, boom, grief and rage hit him like a ton of bricks. And he goes on this Revenger-style spree. He goes on, uh, actually, it's a hate binge if you will, to quote Detective Burke. I love that that phrase. I always think about that phrase, hate bench, uh, whenever I think about this movie, because it's perfect. It's a perfect description of how, like, almost addictive the rage is for him. You know, it becomes all-consuming. And I guess, I, well, I don't know. You know, this might be something to talk about another day, but I'll just say really fast. I think there's an interesting split between the Re Revengers of up until like Dirty Harry and then the ones after, where prior to Dirty Harry, which is like 1971, um, you know, you got people who are flirting with illegality. You know, you've got, you know, Dave Banyan, he's he's trying to do the right thing, but he's he's tempted to, to murder. And he comes really close a couple of times. But like then after with Dirty Harry, it's like just people just, it's like gleeful violence, you know, you know illegal vigilante violence, no apology. And so, it, it feels like even the really good Revengers after Dirty Harry, for the most part, they kind of tacitly sign off on the guy who's doing the revenge, usually through like either like just, you know, subjective cinematic techniques or whatever, or they just make the antagonist do more and more awful, vicious stuff. So, it's like, well, he's justified. It's like he's inoculated in advance to do whatever he wants. And well, I don't, I, will. I, I was, yeah, go ahead. Well, I well, was, was just going to say, say it. Yeah, yeah. Oh. You go. 
No, no, we're going to do this all night. We're just going to... Nope, no, I'm kidding. I was just going to say, because uh, I know you're a fan, um, this movie, Big Heat, isn't like those. It reminds me much more of Memento and Three Billboards, mm. where it shows that it's a revenge, pretty unsatisfying proposition and kind of based on failure of imagination. Well, and definitely empathy. So, anyway, that was. I was just kind of curious if you thought, are there antecedents, I guess, to this guy? Mm. At that, I can't quite talk to because unfortunately movies prior to 1960 are probably collectively a blind spot i mean i've certainly seen a fair share of that's them. fair sure. um but sure uh my my biggest decades to to date would be 70s and 80s uh clearly as to why we're doing this in general oh yeah no doubt yeah but i definitely think that that was what you're speaking to is certainly the general trend and to comment a little bit on what you were talking about, the kind of the after Dirty Harry, you know, era, and I think that's spot on. But the other thing is you almost have to separate them into two different categories moving forward mm. um, between civilians and cops revenge films. Because those are two different narratives, not simply just because they're centered around two different characters, but the ethos of a cop deciding to take the law into their own hands is a completely different narrative uh, impetus than a civilian who oftentimes in these movies uh, finds the cops to be ineffectual. Right. So therefore takes the law into their own hand. And that's often why we got a huge wave of uh, certainly dirty, hearing inspired films, Mm -hmm. but almost, uh, almost undoubtedly more empowering, even if, sleazy and icky in a lot of ways <laughs> yeah. uh, when it was people like Robert Forster, you know, cocking a shotgun because his wife got murdered and the cops won't, you know, do anything about it in, um, in vigilante. Uh, actually he was in quite a few of that exact plot. It was, oh, really? he was in uh, walking the edge. He was in vigilante. There's like another one, but there was a huge, huge wave of, um, of kind of, vigilantism uh which you know even crops up into subgenres themselves i mean like you know billy jack is basically a vigilante film not necessarily for mm. any one particular act of violence although at the end there is one in particular <laughs> mm-hmm. but in general billy jack wanders the land that is definitely not his and uh, don's an identity that is not his to don but he does it uh in order to you know enact uh, peace between, but also revenge upon the white man uh, who dares to uh, to come onto their reservation. Oh boy, that movie is so problematic. I love it. Um, yeah, we got to do that an episode on that one time too. I know. Oh, yeah. we mm-hmm. for sure will. Um, but yeah, I think like those are two different things because good point. That's like a branching path of like the moment it became acceptable. I think we, myself included, but like you know society in general started to conflate that and started to think that oh yeah it's the same thing when reality it's not really morally the same thing because um you know it's wrong no matter what but there's a difference between a guy who says he needs you know a bigger hammer (laughs) and a guy who just needs a hammer to begin with (laughs) 
<laughs> That's very true. Um, and, and you're right. There is a, there is a real division there. And, and as you said, the vigilante ones about um, non-civilians, you know, if you will, non-police, uh, those ones in particular, I find are very often, not always, but often very manipulative. And they're very much like, oh, the police are so ineffectual. They're very much like what I would call like just so stories. Mm-hmm. They have to be crafted just like this in order for us to get our... Oh, yeah. They stack the deck. Or, yeah, to get our like collective jollies off on the revenging thing. Yeah, they stack the deck. Exactly. Yeah. There's a, I I read the novel um, for the Big Heat, which uh, Big Heat's pretty faithful, by the way, to the novel. And I'm not going to go into it a ton because, you know, we're here to talk about the movie, of course. But one one thing in the novel that they talked about was he's, um, casting Glenn Ford's interesting because um, Banyan in the novel is actually very physically big and very powerful. And he is a guy who works super hard to keep a close check on his temper. And I think that's part of what makes his kind of descent, you know, temporary descent into, um, into nihilism. So more tragic to watch because he struggles with it. And in the novel, they sketch it out in a couple really well-chosen sentences and passages. And I think it's some of the best I've ever read describing like that afterwards, um, I don't know if you experienced this, but this afterwards embarrassment of expressing rage and then you have the self-reproach because you're like, oh, shit, I'm not in control of myself. And like this novel, like almost better than anybody I've read, it shows him this feeling of disgust towards yourself, you know, because you're not being careful. You know, you've had an uncareful moment. And then you have that feeling, that mixture of humiliation and self-loathing and the aftermath, you know, of the whole you've lost your cool and, you know, and it's not just out of a sense, for me at least, it's not just out of a sense of shame uh, for other people seeing it, although that's a that's part of it too. <laughs> but it's also, it's like I let myself down. I almost feel like, um, it feels like you're like, a, it feels like I'm an addict or something where I've, I've had several months of hard-won sobriety, you know, and I've really worked hard. And then one night I flush it down the drain on a bender and I have to go, okay, I'm starting over again. And, you know, I, I, I so in, 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 basically it's a hate binge. It's like what the Detective Burke says. Uh, like I said, that's one of my favorite moments in that movie. And I always think about that because it is such an accurate description of that like, uh, just, you know, like, I don't know if you feel it, but there's like, um, it's partially fight or flight, I guess, or adrenaline, but there's this tangy little, the tangy zip, if you will, of like a rust, rust flavoring in your mouth. Like when you just are like, you finally lose your shit and like all the defenses get, you know, and I think it's addictive. Honestly, I think it's probably as addictive as anything. And I think you see that Dave Banyan because he has so little else in his life. Now he, he thinks his life is essentially over and he's not even spending that much time with his daughter. I mean, you see, he's, you see her with him a little, but for the most part, he's three little kittens. Oh my God. I'll never think about, well, actually their mittens. I know. And then later she asked him to do the story again. I'm like, why? But anyway, but you know, like, and I think, I do think, I mean, it's like, there's this phrase from Robert Lowell, uh, where he calls it the nourishment of drama where you're like, you know, when you don't have much else going that can get really addictive to have that replenished drama, you know, and I think Glenn Ford does do, even though he's not a huge guy, he does a really good job of showing he's like got the slow burn, especially when he goes to see the, um, the owner of the, uh, oh, it's Victory Auto Wreckers. 
that old car's worth money. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Victory Auto Records, even back then, who knew? Uh, but he's, he, when he goes to see him and he's talking and he's getting more and more upset because the guy keeps sloughing him off with a bunch of bullshit, you know, and he's like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, can I ask, can I go talk to the other? No, I can't allow you to. Well, can I see his tool? No, those are my tools. And it's just like, he's just, the slow burn is happening. And I, I think that's one of the things that's so intriguing about it. And it's, it's almost a hoary cliche in, in revenge films, but it's the reason why it's a cliche is because it resonates so deeply, which is how do you struggle against this thing without becoming indistinguishable from that thing? Uh, like I was saying, I was reading this interesting book called um, The Big Heat by Colin MacArthur. Um, and it's it's off of uh, BFI. It's the uh, British Film Institute, you know, just this little book. But he talks a, a lot about that, about like how the movie from the point after the bomb explodes, how it's like Lang is almost stripping away all the differences between between Banyan and like Stone and Lagana slowly to the point where like his hotel room is like this dark place that's like you can't i mean i don't think lights are ever on in that hotel and it's just it, it's really a reflection of just the sort of poverty of his soul at that moment yeah it says a lot that he vacates his residence immediately after mm-hmm. you know and i don't mean just leaves i mean like guts it you know yeah. um which I, f- I found very interesting because you would i mean on the one hand, I kind of understand the logistics of like maybe needing to relocate. On the other hand, I don't know that movies were operating on that level of plot detail. So I think it was more of a character uh, detail than a you know a plot one. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but to show that he was basically no longer able to see himself in this kind of domestic bliss in those harsh lights. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And and depending on who you talk to some will say well you know banyan he he gets close to the edge but he never goes over it and, and to an extent that's true i mean like there's that part at the end where he's he's got the gun on vince stone and you can literally see him pulling the trigger like you can see the chamber moving you know I, was gonna say, I almost thought i heard it go empty for a moment as if he did it but then it didn't but then i realized he went all the way but not to the very end you know right so i mean in a way i think Yes, he does allow the law to come in each time, and he doesn't, you know, strangle, uh, what's that guy, Larry Gordon to death. Oh, right. Although he basically makes the guy a dead man, so there's that. And there are moments, for example, that even when he's losing himself, that it's clear that he is still in there, because when mm-hmm. the scene in which you're talking about earlier about him at the uh, the scrapyard um when he's talking to that guy, he's treating him just like any other criminal that he talks to or whatever. But the moment the guy ends the conversation saying, I've got a wife and kid too. Yeah. It's the, it's one of the few conversations from that point on uh, that does not end with him punching somebody out. <laughs> that is actually very true. Um, and in a way it's, it's um, this, you're right. You can see him in there and inversely before Katie is killed, you can see, that rage he's keeping down a little too. Like, and I hate to put it in such stark terms, but I mean, I suppose at this point I should just mention that basically Banyan's need to immediately confront Lagana after the, uh, the phone call where they're insulting his wife and everything, it pretty directly leads to her death. I mean, obviously it's not what he intended, but his need to defend her honor and, you know, and then of course him, you know, easily just punching out the bodyguard. Uh, you can see he's like, he's, 
there's this part of him right under the surface and it's and it's unfortunately sometimes the people he loves end up paying the price you know actually i want to say something about the bombing scene too and i think i said this to you the other day it's like i don't know what it is that's so disturbing well it's very disturbing in general but it's like the, the the score is composed like right up to the very edge and it's almost like um i remember i heard a couple composers once refer to like when you're scoring something in reaction to like several dialogue and action beats, like within a scene, like they sometimes would call it, you know, Mickey Mousing. Although I, I think Bugs Bunny was probably more correct, but it's like that. You've got this lullaby theme when he's tucking in his daughter and the three little kittens, you know, and then bam, it's right, right in the middle of the lullaby, the explosion goes off and it just gets steamrolled by the sound effects and some very fast bowing minor cellos. And it's, it's for some reason I find that more disturbing that there isn't that little pause between like a lot of directors would have a sort of a moment between, but this is just, it just rams right into each other, which is, you know, basically what happens is suburban existence is just totally blown away all of a sudden. And it's really not something he ever even took into consideration, despite the fact that he knows just how powerful and ruthless they are to that's the whole problem. <laughs> um, so the idea that he would be in some ways off limits, you know, is a blind spot of his. So it, mm-hmm. it quite literally uh, takes him by surprise. Yeah. Well, and it's also, um, it's funny because again, the mirror image of that is Lagana when he goes to visit him at his, at his daughter's, uh, I don't know, whatever her party is. And Lagana gets like, he, he turns on a dime, he gets furious. So first he's very, oh, you know, this is a picture of my mother. And what can I help you with? What benevolent society do you need some domination? And he goes, no, I want to ask you about homicide. And he flips out and he basically says, I don't want some cop bringing his dirty shoes into my place. So in a way, it's sort of like what happens with Banyan, where he's got this almost idyllic, it's very paradisical <laughs> suburban existence. I mean, it's beautiful. And it's like... Uh, he suddenly realizes there wasn't that line, uh, that big bright line separating these two worlds. Yeah, sure. So uh, this was my second viewing. I think I saw this for the first time four or five years ago or so, and uh, very much enjoyed it the first time, thought it was quite good. And, you know, film noir is not something I automatically like. I always love the visual, so it's like, for the most part, I'm only down to watch one. But, unfortunately, you know, if I'm watching, you know, something that's uh, Raymond Chandler-esque, sure. you know, I, I just, it gets too convoluted for me, so I <laughs> I always need some kind of postmodern take on that kind of noir, like Inherent Vice or, you know, uh, The Long Goodbye or something, mm-hmm. where I feel like it's being obtuse for a reason. <laughs> um, and um, so a lot of times, you know, these plots kind of drag me through the mud a little bit. Um, the Big Heat, obviously, is a very simple story, which is not a pejorative. It's just, it's only about one thing, and it's got a cast of characters that's easy to track and it's amazing how that goes a long way mm-hmm. <laughs> and obviously with fritz lang behind the behind the camera it's a it's one of the most gorgeous film noirs ever made i i love his attention to interiors rather than exteriors you know uh, film noirs are usually in the alleys whereas his is right inside the residences and it's almost scarier that way because that's obviously 
what's encroached upon in in Dave Mannion's life uh, as he starts to try to unravel it. Um, the other thing I really, especially when rewatching, I really like about this movie is that there's no mystery. Um, the opening scene tells you pretty much everything without a line of dialogue. You know, you see um, the cop committing suicide, the wife coming down with a pretty nonchalant attitude <laughs> and then calling a, a mob boss. So there's never any, right. um, you know, validity of Dave Banyan's, you know, suspicions called into question where we know exactly what he knows because it's honestly, it's not that it's not a well-kept secret. So because of that, we're more able to focus on the characters and on the visuals and see the way Dave Banyan uh, starts to kind of lose himself on this journey. And, I think the first 30 minutes or so before the bomb goes off are certainly um, pretty great. I, I love the the scenes of domestic bliss where hmm. when I rewatch them, I can kind of see that something is off, not in their marriage, but in the way that it's almost not quite satirical, but certainly too picturesque to be good uh, to be true almost mm. to an extent i mean when they're sitting down to eat and he's like hey how about i take a sip of your beer and you drink mine <laughs> right you know it's like who are you performing for you know but <laughs> they, they have this very donna reed-esque you know uh relationship that is actually tender and actually full of love and whatnot mm-hmm. but also unfortunately looks like it was a time bomb waiting to explode and by the time that bomb does go off, it's it's all the more shocking, but it's also uh, that much more um, thematically fitting when it does. So that, you know, those music cues and whatnot that we're playing were kind of telling you that the show was about to end any moment now. So, right. um, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's setting off one fuse to light another, basically. And the trajectory of that, I think, is so well handled. I have one minor gripe with this movie and i say that as someone who pretty much thinks is perfect i mean you know like i don't whatever but my only real gripe about this and maybe you can persuade me otherwise maybe you can't we'll see but not but that's on you but um <laughs> begin no, um <laughs> all right cracking my knuckles over here let's see yep Give me your worst. <laughs> no, go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. For me is the last 10 to 15 minutes. I think most of the action is good and quite well done and whatnot. But I have two bones that I kind of pick at while I watch it, which is one, I'm not entirely convinced by the um, by the cops coming around when they do. Mm, interesting. I, I feel like maybe I missed something and that is the age of, unfortunately I am able to check my phone when I watch something, you know, but mm. when the sergeants and what and the lieutenants show up after, um, what do you call it? The, uh, Magana got the guards to essentially walk away. Right. And he visits the apartment. And when he, when Dave comes down to the, the end of the steps and they show up and they're like, no, you know what? We're, we're with you. Mm-hmm. What was the impetus there? Because whole movie, they're the opposite. You know, they're they're like, don't do this. This isn't. And for me, I I need some kind of reasoning that, and I I didn't quite understand what it was. And I'm not saying I would take the movie to task for it, but it is something that just kind of shows up when it needs to. And I almost don't even think 
it needed to. Like, I think they could have just been turned if they had showed up in the final scene for the first time mm. and just seen the big picture because Dave Banyan pretty much solved it all, but also didn't kill, you know, whatever. If they would have showed up to that scene, that I would have understood, like, okay, let's uh, let's get you out of here and maybe we can, you know, like, you solved one problem, even though no one wanted to, you know. <laughs> so, I don't know. Is there, is there something I'm missing of an actual concrete scene that may shine a light as to why they would just show up when they do um oh, it, it's is it so, lagana calling off the guards themselves where they're like that's not right yeah i mean i have to admit that some of my favorite stuff is when when uh the brother-in-law brings over the uh yeah the army buddies army but with their service revolvers i mean that that dialogue is like again straight out of the novel and it's classic stuff and yeah it's all like oh you're one man occupation of the philippines we're gonna hear the story again you know or whatever but uh, the one thing about um wilkes and and burke is well burke is definitely banyan's friend all through he's he's only in a few scenes but he's the one who tells him you need to you need to like you need to slow your roll here. Right. And it's in that scene now that the first time you see it, it's easy to kind of miss it. But I think, um, no, I've seen it a few times now. So that's, that's, I think when Lang is dropping little subtle clues, he'll say, Oh, Wilkes is trying to find you a list of mechanics who might've uh, blown up, know how to blow up cars. And he's like, well, don't, don't let him, you know, jeopardize his pension over me. And he's like, Oh man, you, you got Wilkes all wrong. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, talk is cheap basically. And in a way, it's true. I think Wilkes, obviously, obviously at the end, he's a decent guy. And uh, I mean, I do love that that whole part where they're like, ah, we're showing up here to make it official, you know, and he's, uh, you know, breathe, breathing the free air, if you will. Yeah. So I, I do enjoy that aspect. Do you um, think at all a part of it is that is could Wilkes and, and Burke be, um, particularly Wilkes, uh, but be almost play acting, like suspending him on purpose. So that way they don't have to pretend with someone like Lagana that, mm. you know, that they're enabling this. And in reality, they're almost kind of using uh, Dave Banyan, not in an evil sociopathic way, sure. but like, hey, if you can get if you can get this done, you know, more power to you. I mean, in a way, I could kind of see it. You know, it's funny in the novel. Um, there's a lot of talk about the corruption within the police department, but it's it, it's all this stuff about like, well you don't really need to have everybody in the place be corrupt. You only need a few well-placed people. And so there's this constant feeling of paranoia. Like, uh, I don't know this guy, I could go 50, 50 on. I don't know what I think, you know, like now it turns out Burke is, is actually totally on the level, but at the same time, there is this feeling like, well, who can we even trust? Who, who's going along with it because they feel powerless and who's actually on the take? Who's actually getting money? Like, you know, for instance, the policeman who dies, of course, he was making money hand over fist. I mean, he had a place in Atlantic City. I mean, it's like, well, you know, policeman with a summer home is like, you know, pretty ridiculous, you know? Yeah. But I, I think, yeah, I don't know if, if they were kind of, well, you know, maybe you're right, actually, because at the end, they find Bertha Duncan and they assume Banyan killed her, True. but they don't rush and arrest him. Right. They're like, well, we wanted to give you a little time. And it's like, time to do what? They literally say, like, we saw you got there first, but that was it. Like, they don't say. Yeah, they're not even like, damn it, man, that's murder. They're like, mm, yeah. you know. but I mean, so maybe, yeah, maybe they are kind of like, well, we're just going to set you loose and let you do whatever you want to do because maybe you'll be more, uh, it'll be more expeditious <laughs> if you do it. I don't know. Right. Because you're not going to join us, so therefore you might as well go on this crusade. Right. 
Well, you know, it's um, one of the things, the other things in, in the novel is it shows that um, Banyan's like are actually a, a very much has a pretty big life of the mind. Like he'll come home from work and he'll be on the late shifts. So it'll be like two in the morning and him and his wife will sit on the couch and hang out and, you know, trade, you know, little witty repartee. And uh, he'll read like Immanuel Kant, you know, or something like that. And it's, yeah, yeah which I mean, I know you recently, I believe, got something by him. Didn't you purchase something by yeah, Kant? It's right over there. And that's just not, that's not me lying. I mean, it is literally right over there. Right. But I'll knock over like a million books to get to it. <laughs> oh, man, I have the same problem. But I don't know. I just find Kant laughable. I don't know what it is. No, it's, it's sorry. It's from Kicking and Screaming. It's oh, one man. of those like stray lines where Chet just says something and then you move on. You're like, yep. you just, you only hear like this little part of the conversation. You're like, where did that, where were they going with that? But, <laughs> but yeah, he, he even said like in the book, he talks about how he gets a lot of, as a policeman, even though he sees a lot of awful things, he gets a lot of strength from what he calls the gentle philosophers, which are people like, um, let's see, I got the list, St. John of the Cross, Kant, Spinoza, Santayana, the ones who thought it was natural for man to be good and that evil was an aberrant course, abnormal and accidental and out of line with man's true needs and nature. And I think that's, again, partly makes his descent so tragic, but I mean, fortunately, it's not a permanent one. Um, and I, I actually, that's one of the other things I love about the movie. And, and, and I mean, in the book, it's probably accentuated a lot too, but in the movie, he's got this, it's, it's like the, his nihilism is proved false over and over and over by the community. And I almost, I almost sometimes think of it as like the film noir version of it's a wonderful life yeah. where it's like, you know, cause that's a, I mean, that's got some I dark was actually moments. reminded. I thought it was slightly Capra-esque. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Where all these people kind of come in. And uh, it's funny because in the novel at the end, he even goes, yeah, you know, it turns out I couldn't do it alone. I thought I could, but I needed this guy who, this coroner in this other place that helped me out. And uh, this priest who, you know, came over here and did this for me. And these guys who helped uh, protect my daughter. And he's kind of musing like, you know, I needed that community. I couldn't do it on my own. And my mistake was trying to do it on my own. I think that's a really powerful message that I resonates with me very, very strongly. And I mean, he's even getting help from strangers. I mean, like that, of course, that scene at the Victory Auto Records with the Selma Parker, she helps him twice. And I mean, really puts herself in danger the second time. And she doesn't know him from Adam. I mean, yeah. you know, in a way, it, it, it was funny. Uh, it reminded me of that villain in, um, you know, the movie Prisoners, the Melissa Leo's character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, she has the weirdest motivation at the end where she's like, talks about how like the reason she's kidnapping and killing children she's trying to make people good people lose faith in god and, and she says turn them into demons and it's sort of like the hugh jackman character does in a sense get at least temporarily turned into a demon and you see that with i think with banyan where he's just hit by this uh, unthinkable tragedy and he, he almost Almost goes over, but he keeps getting snapped back over and over by the kindness of family and, and the, the kindness of strangers, you know? <laughs> and I think that is one of the things I find so, so moving about the movie. And I, I definitely, I, I think that's the reason why I wanted to have that quote from the um, McGivern, the William McGivern uh, novel, The Big Heat, at the beginning, because it, it does show 
an entire community of people who, for the most part, the vast majority are, are living ethical lives. And, you know, I thought that quote really captures that. Um, well, you know, while I'm here, I should also say thank you to Troy Sterling Knees All for right. performing that opening part. Uh, yeah. Troy and I met, gosh, uh, several decades ago um, on a uh, site that was a songwriter's forum back when the Internet was relatively young actually um sterling's a absolutely fantastic composer but his his music his compositions are they have this uh ability to be both elating and also at the same time very uh eldritch if you will uh <laughs> you know, which is probably a word i'm using partly because of his work for the hp lovecraft historical society he's scored their radio plays which are wonderful too and also he's the composer and uh, one of the producers of the diabolical tales radio hour which i know i've talked about a fair amount in the past <laughs> uh but uh yeah troy just uh, performed it perfectly I, i'd asked him to do kind of a more deadpan performance because i knew that music underneath was going to be fairly prepared and you know he delivered exactly that it was uh very low-key and uh, just the right thing for the intro so shout out to troy sterling niece um, Appreciate but I, I know i know what you mean in a way uh, you're not the only person who felt that um wilkes's change was odd i remember reading two other reviewers um from that year who were like well that seemed a little odd but i mean then again on the other hand Truffaut thought it made perfect sense because he was like oh well if you look at the dialogue from earlier so yeah, it's definitely not something like i mentioned that i would take it to task for like i pretty much think this movie is you know pitch perfect um but you know for me for whatever reason i probably will never watch that scene without doing a like a half second <laughs> okay you know kind of yeah like whatever hmm. uh, but i do think that you know the more i think about the idea of them essentially just letting him be lone wolf mccade uh <laughs> i pretty much actually don't think that that's even like an interpretation like a buzzfeed theory like i actually think <laughs> that, that there's valid arguments to be made but that's what they are doing so mm -hmm. in that lens i do appreciate that they're essentially dropping the charade uh and and coming at the at the moment that they're basically allowed to to drop it um so i i, I think what you're touching on though is pretty much what does make it pretty unique which is that kind of like i said gapper-esque um warmness of the community coming through and whatnot and that's also what's directly responsible for the movie being as dark as it is because in a movie that has you know this kind of uh list to it at times uh you know sometimes you watch a film noir and it doesn't feel all that dark because everyone's just an asshole so it's more just kind of like <laughs> Okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah, there's no, like, there's no contrast. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't really care when someone double-crosses a double-crosser, you know? Like, I mean, it's fun, you know, intellectually, sure, you know, whatever. But I don't go, oh, she gotcha, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, no, I agree. But in this movie, you know, like, this movie doesn't just have a scene uh, where Debbie gets the, the coffee thrown on her. Right. It, it has the prelude of that moving up to where when she is first starting to get beaten that, you know, um, the one guy jumps up 
to almost intervene and you know because even characters in the movie are not completely sadistic and they're like whoa you know right that's not okay but then of course the other character is like hey, if you want to be next go ahead but you know that kind of thing yeah that is such an interesting scene not just because it's the famous coffee throwing thing is one of the things everybody knows about even people who haven't seen the movie know about that but it is interesting because you see how well, that's what the title is right it's about the coffee the big heat yeah, yeah. it's yes I, I believe that's the t- yes i believe you're correct about that it's uh it's it was a, you know the big bean well and then they were going to go for the folgers in your cup is the best part of waking up but then they realized it was too long and folgers didn't exist at the time so true yeah and they hadn't quite got um, well, th- no, they they didn't exist at the time because they didn't come into existence until they started running ads featuring incest. Oh, are they the ones? That was that was one correction I wanted to make because I said it was just, it was the Sears son of a gun AC ad. Yes, uh, but it wasn't. It was the Folgers uh, incest ad okay. that I was thinking of. I gotta see this. You gotta from the last episode. Yes, yes. You gotta. I gotta track this. We gotta see this. Uh, I will. I will send it to you. Well, I would. I would love to see it. Uh, and it's like, but I mean, like you were saying about the commissioner stands up and he's like, "Well, maybe we should call it a night." And it's like you see, oh, now we know what the power dynamic is in. Yeah. You know, in name, he's the commissioner, but he's not in charge of fuck all. You know, and I mean, he's the one who has to take her to the hospital because yeah. we can't take her because we're criminals. You're gonna go, and it's like he doesn't even argue. I mean, it's 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 interesting. I was telling you about Colin MacArthur's book, The Big Heat, and he was talking about the Selma. Parker character, the the gal at the Victory Auto Records, and she's got a uh, limp. Um, she's obviously got, I don't know if it was polio or what, but he, Colin MacArthur was saying that um, when the script was first written, it's very possible that the writer was using what was at the time a pretty common trope in Hollywood movies where people with physical disabilities were considered malevolent. Which, I mean, is just so weird. It's like, wow, kick them while they're down, why don't you? But apparently that was a very common shorthand where they'd be like, oh, he's got a hunch or something, so he's bad. And in this case, Lang, basically without changing a line of dialogue, turned it around. At least this is what Colin MacArthur thinks. He turned it around and made her this incredibly basically humane human being who goes out on a limb form. And then he says... And her limbs don't always work. Well, true. She's going out... Oh. God damn it, man. Don't worry. Project exploitation is safe from getting canceled because this is sex in the city. Thank you, Dan. Continue. That's true. Right. We're, we're totally, uh, yes, we are quarantined from it. Yes. Uh, but but uh, the way it's, uh, what I was saying, uh, what was I saying? Oh, the, the way the scenes filmed uh, where you see them on opposite sides of a chain link fence. And uh, Callum MacArthur's talking about like how, oh, well, it's like they're imprisoned, you know, and she's. And her disability, it's almost like, as he say here, he's, I have her, um, suggestive of the imprisonment of a basically humane person working for an indifferent employer, and perhaps more generally of a representative of the citizenry under Lagana. So it's almost like you f- the whole citizenry feels this crush from the corruption. They all, you know, so they, so again, maybe that's part of the reason why she wants to help, other than that she probably feels bad for the guy because his wife got blown up for no reason i i totally agree in fact i think that's probably a good segue into maybe uh 
taking a little intermission. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we come back, talking about the cast at large, I have a lot of thoughts that I'm sure you do as well, uh, particularly about Glenn Ford. So um, why don't we put a pin in it there and mm-hmm. we'll see you on the other side. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> the dial of. No, I'm kidding. creator of the automobile (laughs) little known fact yes yeah he was uh henry ford's other son after edsel yeah yes he was the one who wasn't a nazi sadly true (laughs) and if you ever want me to go on for hours about uh american (laughs) companies collaborating with the nazis i would be happy to do that and i don't think anyone else would be happy though (laughs) oh man tiny tangent because i mentioned to you repeatedly that i really want you to watch it uh but the i don't know what the novel did but the uh, david simon adaptation of the plot against america oh yeah goes after uh ford in a big way uh, he's a minor character but it makes no qualms about his place even in alternate history uh it's not like it's like oh this is what if like no 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 this what if is uh only uh to who he actually was oh yeah i mean uh he's uh i think one of only three americans who received like this incredibly high honor from the nazis like hitler sent him a personal note uh like him Lindbergh, and i want to say teagle but i might be wrong oh. i don't know but yeah it's uh it, it's pretty damning i mean the anti-semitism is is woo doggy yes yes so Oof. we're not here to talk about anti-semitism uh not tonight at least well. uh <laughs> we'll, we'll save that for another night uh, we are here to talk about the big heat and specifically the casting so we'll start at the top of this mountain uh the the big heat himself the titular big heat mm. uh dave banyan uh played by glenn ford so dan i'm gonna light a little fuse here yeah. uh put it out if you think it's too hot but okay. i'm gonna say that i think glenn ford is genuinely an amazing and charismatic presence to watch in any film that he's in. Um, I very much enjoy his roles and his work, um, but I also don't think he's one of the great actors. Um, In fact, I think he's one of somewhat limited range. And I think that's what makes the big heat work uh, on screen very well, is that I think this is a case of good casting over good performance. Because, you know, especially in film noir, you almost always need someone who's just able to 
ooze out of their pores, you know, when it, uh, hard boiledness. And Glenn Ford just can't, you know, he just looks like a doughboy. He looks like everybody's best friend's dad. It's true. You know, just a swell, swell person. So this whole hate binge that he goes on is very out of his range and out of his character, I think, as an actor, mm. that I actually think it makes it that much more potent because he's just posturing the whole time. You know, this is very much not him and not really something that he's good at, so to speak. And he pays the price for that repeatedly. He literally gets people killed. Mm. So I don't know if you thought that of like, if you, if you're the op opposite, if you just think that no, no, he's a great actor and you know, this movie works because of his performance or, but I'm curious, what is your, what are your thoughts about uh, either his performance or just the casting of him in general? Well, um, boy, it's really, really some good questions there. Um, I would say, uh, I, I like Glenn Ford. He's likable. And I think, like you said, for instance, he's so good in the domestic scenes with Jocelyn Brando, who, by the way, is fantastic. I don't know why she wasn't in more things. And I, I think I've seen like maybe two other movies she was in, uh, which both had Marlon Brando in them. Anyway, but she was so good. I love their patter. It seems very affectionate. But once Glenn Ford goes on the hate bench, though, you're right. It does feel like this like five foot tall guy in a 10 foot suit or something, you know, not to say that I, I don't believe him when he's able to slug the shit out of somebody, you know, or when he's like grabbing, you know, he's, he's always calling everybody thief. It's like, yeah, thief. You know, yeah, it's I, very I, weird uh, vernacular. It's very strange. That's what I, I also mean is that it, it's it's like a, he's a, he's a foreigner in, on the, in this soil, you know, because he's trying to do the speak and the walk and the talk, and it doesn't look natural on him because he doesn't even get it right. And, <laughs> and I say that as a strength of the movie and, and the character. That's really interesting. I had not really thought about it in these terms before. I mean, I, I thought at best he does a okay job, a good job, you know, but I mean, it's, it's tough because there's other people in this film who shine so bright. And I think it's almost the kind of the consensus that Glenn Ford turns in a workmanlike performance and, and it, it's good. It's not, I mean, it doesn't detract at all, but it's not what makes the film a great, great film. Uh, so I, yeah, originally I think Fritz Lang said he wanted, geez, uh, George Raft, who was a pretty big guy and actually pretty mobbed up too, actually. Um, and I think he also talked about Edward G. Robinson, and I think he might have been a little too old though for the role by that point. But I, I, like I said in the novel, he's a big dude. Like you almost imagine somebody like. I don't know, like, uh, I'm trying to think of somebody right now who's, like, pretty tall and humongous. The Rock. The Rock. Yeah, I was thinking of somebody, like, a little more suburban, I guess, but not like John State or whatever. But, you know, like, I don't know, like, uh, Jason Siegel, maybe, you know, he's pretty tall, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I get Kind of, like, oversized, but still an average guy. Uh, yes, exactly. Exactly. So, I, I, think, it's, I think it's a good performance uh, overall. But I think you're right. It doesn't, it's, it's like he's wearing a suit of clothes that doesn't fit him. And I think maybe that's to his credit, to the character's credit, because he does, like I said, he keeps bouncing back from almost going over the edge and, you know, and becoming something he doesn't want to be. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And it's not so much that he 
doesn't play bad guys. I mean, he gives a great performance in 310 to Yuma. Uh, mm, that's right. You know, uh, psychologically speaking, as the quote-unquote criminal in that movie. Forgot where, about that. Really, by the end of that movie, it's not so much that, you know, you root for one over the other, but obviously a lot of is stripped down. And um, the two men, obviously, you find out that they have a lot more in common spiritually than they than they realize but he's still convincing in that role so it's not so much mm. that he's uh beneath or above any of this kind of stuff but there's something about this particular one man takes on an army that seems out of his depth in in, in very practical ways and so therefore it, it makes a ton of sense that he's kind of screwing it up as he goes along. I mean, he <laughs> is indirectly responsible for the deaths of the uh, a lot of the, well, really a lot of the females of this movie. Let uh, alone, oh yeah. Let alone the direct, uh, you know, reason for possible deaths and or at least serious bodily harm of some of the hard nosed, you know, criminals and whatnot. But. You know, the other thing, and kind of moving away a little bit from Glenn Ford and getting on to some of the others, um, but I, I also want to mention uh, the performance of Lee Marvin as Vince Stone. Oh, yeah. Lee Marvin in general is always great, but, you know, it takes a special kind of uh, performance, I think, to outshine the big bad because, mm-hmm. you know, Lagana obviously is the person at the top and he's the. You know, nothing happened without his say-so, but the real actual catalyst of sheer incarnate evil in this movie is, is Vince, Vince Stone's character. <laughs> um, you know, he's got the most notorious scene of violence uh, with the coffee, and of course his uh, comeuppance is a direct <laughs> uh, echo of what he did to Debbie, but is the most satisfying of, of all of the, of the scenes. You know, it's the one time where the film's revenge is uh, not as sour as the rest because, you <laughs> so, know, she didn't really go after anything that he didn't already take from her. You know, it wasn't a, oh, you did this to me, so therefore I'm going to ruin your life. It was kind of like, you know, you can't just go around doing this. So here, uh, now you're going to go around looking like the victims of what you do, you know, like it's a very theatrical uh, comeuppance, both in the poetic justice of it being the, the literal act of what he did, but also as being this quite literal signifier mm-hmm. of for him to have to go out in, in public now uh, with this uh, cross to bear, because unlike Debbie, I think, you know, she's going to be okay because she's always been somebody who's, uh, I wouldn't say maybe looked down on herself, but didn't think much of herself. And that's why she was in these situations. Whereas, you know, someone like Vince thought he was on top of the world. So the, the, the pain that that kind of act would cause and not just physical, but mental uh, is so much worse in his case than it will end up being uh, for, for Debbie. Now that of course is putting aside the fact that she dies, but, but yeah, it, just, just in that exchange of, of blows. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you think of uh, Lee Marvin uh, as Vince Stone? Uh, I think he's fantastic. I, I like Lee Marvin a lot. In fact, a couple of my favorite movies from the sixties, he's the lead in. It's a movie called the killers in which uh, he has one of the coolest death scenes ever. I mean, spoiler alert, I guess it's the very end, but he does this fall where he topples onto his face in this front lawn in the middle of the day. And it's like, I don't know how he did the fall, but it's incredible. I'm like, damn, that's one of the great falls in movies. 
And then he was also in Point Blank, which is one of the greatest revengers ever, which is interesting because he doesn't end up um, visiting any violence upon the people. His presence forces them to screw up and they end up killing themselves somehow or wounding themselves over and over again. So there's this odd humor to it, but he's also this incredibly single-minded guy, like to the point where you're like, is he even real? Is he like a wraith from from beyond? Because like, did he really survive all that times he got shot? I don't know. Well, anyway, Point Blank is just a stone classic. But anyway, I love Lee and Marvin in this. I like uh, his exchanges with uh, Lagana. Um, the the stuff where he's talking to him, he's like, "Well, should I should I take care of uh, you know Banyan for?" Him? And he's like, "You worry me, Vince. You know, it's like he's like." You haven't learned anything yet. I'm trying to teach you how to do play the long game as a gangster, you know? And there's another part where Larry Gordon and him are talking to Lagana and Vince Stone's like, ah, well, you know, if she keeps drinking, I'll just throw her to the curb. She, she doesn't have any claim on me. And Larry Gordon's like, ah, yeah, well, uh, throw her my way. I'm a rebound man from way back. And Lagana's like, I don't like your filthy mouth. And and he, like, and there's a cut, there's just a switch, little, just quick cut to Lee Marvin. And he, he's looking over to Larry and he's like, mm-hmm. just, he's got a cigar. He's like, just yeah. don't say anything else, you know, because you will regret it if you don't just, you're, you're going to learn. This is, this is what you do in this situation. So, so there's a lot of like little grace notes like that, but um, yeah, I, I think he's absolutely superb and he's, Evil in a thoughtless way, which I think is probably how most violent people are. I don't think there's a great deal of foreplanning or, yes, you know what I mean? Very id driven. You know, it's just pure id. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Gotta have id. Id? Gotta have id, man. (laughs) Kicking and screaming again. Uh, Now they're kicking and screaming reference. So good. Old Man River. Um, but, uh, yeah, I love, I love Lee Marvin in this a lot. And, uh, of course, I mean, if you don't mind, uh, I, I'd like to talk a little about Gloria Graham, who, uh, is, uh, I do mind. Okay. Well then, you know, you're just going to have to take it cause it's happening, man. It is happening now. Okay. But she's one of my all time Hollywood crushes. Uh, and she's, she always, every role she's in, she has a very magnetic sexuality, but it's got this elusive quality too. And I almost would describe it as attractiveness. So it's like, you know, how like sometimes, you know, people who aren't whatever conventionally handsome or, or beautiful and, but yet they're attractive. Now she's very conventionally beautiful, but she has these characteristics that I think have always kind of separated her from a lot of the ingenues and that were her age that were competing for roles with her in Hollywood at the time. You know, she plays these characters um, who are like impulsive, but they seem to be almost viewing the events sometimes from like a certain remove. Like, I almost imagine she's got this thing running in the back of her head, like, well, it's good to keep a sense of humor about these things (laughs) or something like that. Yeah. And I found out apparently Columbia Pictures actually wanted Marilyn Monroe for this role. And she was uh, contracted at for another place and they couldn't negotiate it. So they went with Gloria Graham and I, I'm sure Marilyn Monroe would have done a good job, but Gloria Graham was a much more accomplished actor at that point. I mean, Marilyn Monroe really came into her own in the late fifties, early sixties. I was going to say that was pretty early for Monroe as far as actual notoriety. Oh yeah. 
Interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, Gloria, Gloria Graham had already won an Oscar and been nominated also prior to that. Uh, there's just a lot of subtle notes that Gloria Graham brings to it. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, In a Lonely Place was only, you know, two or three years prior to this, and that's one of the all-time greats. Oh, I agree. I mean, I love her so much in that. And I've probably said this to you a million times, but I mean, it's it's got like maybe the saddest ending lines in the history of cinema where she's like, oh, yesterday that would have meant so much, but now it doesn't mean anything. And it's like, just crushes you and oh god it's so good mm-hmm. but uh and again some of it has to do with her performance too just the way she delivers those lines um Truffaut has a line here in his review he says she's always had a certain high strung tension and in this film she's absolutely perfect <laughs> and uh another person here said she has a feigned obliviousness and highly evolved variations on her patented scatterbrain misdirection. I think that's really true. She has this kind of feeling like she's viewing things, like I said, from a certain remove, but at the same time, she's also like, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit of a holy fool here and pretend not to know, understand too much because it'll, it'll get me into trouble and I'll get beaten up or, or worse, you know? And honestly, I don't know if you feel this, but I think... And this could just have to do with my own obsessions, frankly. But if I could think of another performance, other than other Gloria Graham performances, that reminds me of her in this movie, I would say it's Elizabeth Shue in this uh, movie from 1998. It's like this kind of sunbleach noir called Palmetto. If she has, like, Elizabeth Shue... Well, first of all, the movie's like, you can see the humidity just coming off the road and and off the walls. And she has this like blissed out uh, concupiscence, I guess, where, and and she just, she has this pretense of incomprehension. And it's like between the humidity and it's like, she's just barely, she seems to be just barely paying attention. And some of it might have to do with the humidity, just like exhausting everyone. And also the fact that she's extremely wealthy. And so nothing matters to her very much. She's like Southern gentry, you know? And also she has this way of walking super slow. Uh, it's like, it's going to take her a week just to get across the room. And it's, she radiates like some seriously, sexy suggestiveness i mean and and again it's like she looks semi-exhausted like she's trying to take the trouble if she's gonna decide to seduce you or not you know but it's one of the sexiest performances in movies and it's she keeps her clothes on for the whole thing too so much like gloria graham it's all in the suggestiveness and not in the the other goods so well you know this reminds me of one thing uh which i was looking over gloria graham's credits and Mm. I had no idea that I had actually seen a late career performance of hers that I did not, I forgot it was her basically. Oh, really? Which will kind of tie it into our mothership uh, project exploitation. But Mm. she plays, um, uh, basically she plays Mama in uh, Mama's Dirty Girls, which is a film from 1974. Mm. And um, it's, uh, it's a great little uh, sex blow where mama has three very very horny nymphs that she's essentially trained to seduce men so that they can murder them and get their money and run off run off to another uh, of course. Uh, you know, another mm. place but she's mama in that equation and it's just it's one of the grimiest uh sex blows i've ever seen um post the roughies uh because it's in color and it's past that era of what you know like 
Doris Wishman, Bad Girls Go to Hell, but it's in this way more seedy, like, uh, you know, like porn was coming into its own. So therefore it was allowed to do a lot more things, even if it wasn't quite pornographic. And um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great little uh, sex blow, but the reason why I bring it up is just because I've totally forgot that Gloria Graham, you know, and this is 1974, mm-hmm. uh, was the was the matriarch in that movie, and she did a great job in it. You know, it's exactly. It didn't look like she was slumming it. Uh, I'm sure other people may think that, but I think it takes someone special to kind of effortlessly slide into uh, those kind of pictures, uh, even if it's by circumstance. I'm not saying she maybe didn't, you know, want to do more than that or something like that hmm. but you know she didn't just uh cash it That's, i did not know about that at all um she uh there's a quote from like the year uh the big heat came out and it was just one of those hollywood mags and she said this really interesting thing like oh well they ought to call me mrs obituary for 1953 or whatever year because she's like i love the ones where i'm really getting smacked around she's like you know, the Mickey Spillane type stuff. She's like, it's not because I'm a masochist. It's just, those are the scenes the audiences remember, those really visceral scenes. So she definitely liked to play to the edge. I mean, she danced near the edge of the razor quite a bit, uh, at least as far as they could at the time. Yeah. That's uh, really interesting. I did not know about that film. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Matt would have been one of her Mm -hmm. final performances because it looks like, unfortunately, she was diagnosed with breast cancer in that year. So she didn't live uh, much past that. It looks like 81 is when she passed away. So, But uh, good on her for uh, quite the illustrious career. I mean, you have some of the greatest films of all time early on, and yet she also, I think, uh, (laughs) did some very fun performances uh, in, in her later years that I would not take away from her one bit. You know, I always forget that she's in It's a Wonderful Life until I'm watching it again every year or every other year. And I'm like, son of a gun, that's Gloria Graham. You know, she. that's true of a lot of those movies where like these certain people keep just showing up everywhere. Like that like group of 30 or 40 character actors. You're like, oh man, it's that guy again or that gal again. They're so good, you know? I feel like even though I intrinsically know that Cary Grant is like one of the most famous actors, you know, of all time, I still always go, oh, this is a Cary Grant movie to about like any movie he made, I don't know, maybe before the 40s or something, you know, sure. like I've seen stuff that he was in, obviously, from the 30s, um, especially some of the more screwball stuff. Oh, yeah. And I forget just how many movies he was in. <laughs> he was like a workhorse before he just became an actual, like, natural-born star. It's amazing how hard some of these actors worked. Like, I was reading that Lee Marvin, when he was making this movie, I don't know if he was, like, shooting during the day on one set and shooting at night on another, but he was shooting the wild one, the Brando movie, the motorcycle gang one. He was shooting that at the time, too. He was was one of the Beatles. That was the name of the biker gang. And, uh, like, he... Was he Ringo? Uh, well, actually, I mean, in truth, the Beatles did say they got part of their idea from that, although it wasn't B-E-A-T, so that was their invention. But. Did they really say that? Oh, yeah, 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 it's true. Yo, they love Brando. Huh. Yeah. I thought maybe this was one of those dumb internet things. I always thought that their thing was from Buddy Holly. Oh, the crickets. Well, they loved, cr- yeah, right. they loved Buddy Holly and the crickets, like if they too. were the crickets and they're the Beatles type thing. Hmm. Well, they used to be called Johnny and the Moondogs, believe it or not, like way back. I don't believe it. 
it's it's bizarre. I know. I w- I don't blame you for not believing it because it's so. It sounds like I just made it up. Like yeah, yeah they were uh, they were the uh, glowworms for a time, and then they were the Tamsmen for no. Anyway, sorry. okay. Just to really quickly, sorry. Yes. I just want to point out because I just confirmed. Mm. In the 30s alone, from uh, 32 to 39, Cary Grant was in 34 movies, which seems like a lot. Holy cow. So, anyway, Wow. Well, what was the time period again? From 32, because that was his first uh, role, was in 32, uh, all the way through the end of 39. And it wasn't until about 38 i would say when he started to star in like classics because 38 is bringing up baby and then followed that sure. with holiday only angels have wings his girl friday and so on oh, okay but throughout that entire period where i'm I, yeah he was gaining notoriety he was still like he hadn't been in any of those classics until the end of that decade and he was in about 30 plus you know movies that's pretty crazy for that era well, I didn't know. I didn't know there was that many. That's incredible. Yeah, that's why I'm always like when I see TCM and I'm like, oh, it's a Cary Grant film. And I'm like, never heard of this. Oh, it's from the '30s when he was this whippersnapper. <laughs> that's great, huh? Well, yeah, I would like to talk a little about. Uh, okay, Roger Ebert has a very relatively well-known theory about okay. his his opinion about what the Big Heat is about, which he thinks is one of the great films. By the way, it's in his book, The Great Movies, Volume Two, and he has a very well, I would say, a pretty famous interpretation uh, in which he's he feels it's working simultaneously on two levels, right? So, level two is brought across not from the screenplay. Uh, but just from Lang's choice of lighting and, and uh, framing and editing. And so, okay, his theory goes that in the same way that Banyan is basically living two discrete lives at the beginning, you know, one is the cop who's, you know, he's in the shit. And, you know, the one is the husband. The movie operates on two levels. And the first level is dark, definitely, because it's a film noir, but with a hero whose motivations are pretty comprehensible and pretty sympathetic. You know, the poles between good and bad are pretty clear. Now, Ebert says there's a second level, which is like pitch black and very discomforting, frankly, to read about. And here's a quote. He says, Banyan's buried agenda is to set up the women, allow their deaths to confirm his hatred of the Lagana stone crew, and then wade in to get his revenge. Of course, he doesn't understand this. He invites evil into the lives of his wife and two other women by his self-righteous heroism. So, in other words, Banyan is like the inversion of the noir trope of the femme fatale. In this case, all the women he meets are killed or placed in jeopardy. While he doesn't, you know, not a glove nor a bullet ever touches this dude. I mean, he comes away totally unscathed. Now, I think it's an interesting interpretation. And I think Ebert, being a brilliant writer and a brilliant man, he does argue it very convincingly. But... I don't necessarily see it myself unless it, it would be, uh, I think it would have to be so far into the unconscious of Banyan that it, I mean, which maybe is Ebert's point, but I feel there's another level. I feel there's a third level that doesn't appear until the third act. And that's, you know, that's when it's detectable. And that I find even more worrisome. And okay. So this is how it breaks down. Okay. And I know you and I talked about this a few weeks ago, and I, I wasn't able to quite I, – I, I'm still having trouble finding the words exactly. But, okay, so the trouble is, at the end, the mechanism that brings about the fall of the whole criminal enterprise is the killing that is perpetrated by Debbie, right? 
Vanny wants it to happen, but he refuses. You know, he steps back. So Debbie, who's the supposedly morally compromised uh, consort, <laughs> you know, gun mog of gangsters. So she does it for him. So uh, what what, are, what am I to understand? I mean, what does this say as us in the audience? Wh- what are we to basically understand? Is it that, well, she's already a criminal and she's damaged goods. So why not have her sell herself further so that we, the audience can have a resolution that we crave? Because we want it. I mean, this is really Banyan and us in the audience having our cake and eating it too. And I'll say this, but I'll preface it with this. The the widow Duncan, Bertha Duncan, is a truly loathsome character. When Banyan is like getting ready to strangle her, I, it's terrible for me to say this, but I'm like mostly on the way there with him. I'm like, yeah, maybe she needs some killing, you know? I mean, it's terrible to say that, but I feel that. And in fact, even in the novel, she's even worse. She's like, she talks about the delight she felt when she heard that her husband's mistress was tortured and murdered and how, how great she felt about keeping her husband's last dying wish from coming, you know, from, I mean, she's just really, she's bad news. But the fact that Debbie pulls the trigger, I don't think that lets Banyan or more importantly, us off the hook, our desires, because we want it to happen. And, and I think we're morally implicated regardless of whether or not it happens under other indirect circumstances, okay? So, the, the, the maybe the chief problem that I always have in The Big Heat, and I think this is intentional in the part of Lang, I might be wrong, I think this is a moral problem that he intentionally places in there, maybe so we don't feel too safe and smug about how everything turns out. Because, okay, yeah, Debbie's revenging for her own sake too but she's also kind of doing it because banyan's been a stand-up guy for her and let's like do a thought experiment right and imagine for a second that she didn't kill bertha duncan right so what that means is banyan wouldn't would, would he just would have had to keep going he just toiling away collecting information and hearsay and let's face it the mobsters might have never been brought to justice so it's not it's not a deus ex machina Per se, because the 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 machina, the deliverance function, it occurs in something that's strongly rooted in like the first scene. The plot is right in it, so it's not like something swoops in and to save the day. But the resolution kind of lulls us into thinking that we have got clean hands and Banyan has got clean hands. It's like a Blondie ex machina. It's a Debbie ex machina. It's a Debbie ex machina. Oh, wow. Boom. That's that's why I get the money. That's why they. But it's. It, it, but do you see what I mean? It's frustrating to me because I feel that I'm morally implicated too. It's like we get this cheat. You know what I mean? Like, well, we get to have this thing, but we didn't do it. So it just out of a happy turn of events, it all worked out. And it's like eh, I don't know. It, it, I find it very disturbing, and I, 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 that's about the best way I've been able to explain it so far. I completely agree, actually. Um, and that's kind of what I alluded to, but got sidetracked earlier when I got hung up on the uh, the cops coming around. But that was the other point I wanted to make. Oh, yeah. The ending is a little too pat. Not as far as plot goes, because I'm less concerned with that. But with the idea that, yeah, this is essentially taken out of Dave Bandian's hands. Right. It really doesn't drive home the hate binge part because he only comes to a stop because he's allowed to, you know? Yeah. When he chooses not to 
kill Vince. At that point, he's gotten everything he does technically need and wanted. Totally. It's not like there are loose ends. And he had been saying up until that point that this is all he wanted with that. While he says he was going to kill him, like I had said earlier, it was kind of more posturing, you know, in his performance, a little more bravado, uh, misplaced and whatnot. So I agree that there was a, there's a slightly more morally interesting film nestled within this one if they actually had him have to make that choice but instead debbie does it for him and i give the film credit for essentially at least understanding the weight of her sacrifice because mm-hmm. um, it's not like it casts her aside after her death like pretty much the final scene well before the a literal final scene but the final scene in the penthouse is mostly concerned with debbie's dying breasts and you know her happiness uh you know fleeting as it is as, as they kind of exchange some a little bit more and it's kind of interesting that her last act on earth is almost trying to get him to remember what used to you know give him his humanity i.e the memory of his lost wife and Mm -hmm. um she's just she's she's really a morally good person Mm -hmm. like she does a reprehensible thing but she almost does it out of a sacrificial light essentially basically saying it almost comes from a place of self-loathing like I've got nothing and I am nothing so I can do this so right. you know you don't have to and and if anything unfortunately not that I condone murder but that is a selfless act in in a lot of ways um particularly when you know you have a character like Dave Banyan who is supposed to be the tough guy and is supposed to uh you know get things done so I I find that whole character fascinating and I do think the movie does do right by her but you know, and maybe there's something to be said that Dave Banyan can't really get anything done. <laughs> you know, like he just gets people killed. Debbie's the one who has to kill. She kills Bertha, and then obviously starts it with uh, Vinstone. And uh, Wilkes comes around, you know, after the guards are pulled and essentially allows uh, Banyan to walk away from most of his crime scenes. Yeah. Like, Banyan doesn't really do anything smart in this movie. You know, he's kind of. The, the worst dumbest cop in the and as he should be he's acting on motion not on logic sure. but it's astounding that when you were talking earlier that he's able to do this because of other people that that, that that's like underselling it <laughs> he's not able to do shit it's really a bunch of other people uh, allowing him to process his trauma uh, as they uh, you know clean up his shit and or sometimes suffer the consequences of it so but uh i think debbie's uh, a great character for sure i i like her a lot too and it was kind of what you said earlier about how she seems to have kind of a low opinion of herself in a way with just kind of how she keeps falling in with these guys and so for her it's like this is a far greater thing than i've ever you know that kind of thing where she can do that and it's great, but it, it feels, again, like I wonder if it's Lang is telling us, well, don't get too comfortable because you guys wanted it. We all wanted it. And we got to get it without our our precious hero being sullied, if you will. Instead, the gangster's girl did it for us. 
And I think it might be intentional. Um, I, I find it extremely disturbing. It, it, you'll see it sometimes in other films, but it's v- very rarely do you see it so clearly portrayed as in this movie. And um, it, I, I, it's really thorny. You know? Well, usually in film noir, it is actually a common thing, but it's always played up in a very seductive way. Because this is almost the 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 weird bastardization of the femme fatale mm, trope. You know, right. where instead of it looking good on on this woman you know it's really just a really uncomfortable line that she should never have had to cross particularly after what she had suffered throughout the whole picture no no exactly i mean she's already been through so much and it's like she's trying to clean up her life obviously i mean it's a weird thing and i guess i don't i guess i've said all the words i can about it but it 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 continues to bother me yeah I guess maybe one of the reasons why I, I really love that love the film is that I keep thinking about that stuff all the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, before we go into final rating, did you have some final comments you wanted to make uh, of a particular nature? Oh, uh, well, it has to do with um, B-movies and A-movies. Yeah. Because uh, this was came out in 1953 uh, from Columbia Pictures. Yeah. and this was a B-movie because it's the big heat. The B- Not the... The A. Right, because if it was called the if it was called the Asphalt Jungle, it would be an A movie. Correct. Yep. Boom. So no. Uh but anyway, uh Colin McCarthy talks about how American domestic box office had been going down the tubes ever since well, first the depression and then after World War II. People just did not have the money. Basically, there were only two studios that were able to sustain profits. And even grow. One was MGM because they were just so humongous. And the other was Columbia because they concentrated, man, on a lot of those low budget movies, a lot of quickies. Yeah. And they developed what uh, Colin MacArthur calls a cheese pairing corporate ethos for which it never lost its reputation. And a cheese pairing apparently is a UK idiom. Um, Colin MacArthur's from the UK. But it means that it's actions that highlight one's unwillingness or reluctance to spend money. Uh, so it kind of makes sense. Glenn Kenny in, uh, the liner notes for the indicator version of uh, big heat says that Columbia was a studio that liked its artistic statements on tightly held budgetary leashes. I mean, like for instance, um, there's a song in this movie called put the blame on Mame," And that song's featured in another Columbia movie with Glenn Ford called Gilda from a few years earlier, Rita Hayworth. And then a few years later in 58, that song appears a third time in a Columbia Pictures. I mean, they they wrung every last little bit out of every property they had. They were going to get their money's worth. So that kind of gives you an idea of Columbia. And so the other thing, too, is that Columbia had just bought the rights to this really, really big time novel by James Jones called From Here to Eternity. It's all about the beginning of World War II. And they had this humongous shooting schedule. It went on for months. They had a huge budget. Everything, like their pre-publicity machine went into the works to kind of tell everybody, hey, we got this movie coming. And in the end, it works. I mean, they won a bunch of Oscars. And it's still a pretty well-regarded movie. But The Big Heat and pretty much everything else was considered the B movies. So From Here to Eternity was the one A movie of 1953. And God damn it, they were going to push this thing through. They were going to get the big act. Yeah, they got Burt Lancaster and Frank Sinatra and, you know, I mean, all that. And so you compare that with the big heat where, okay, so the big heat, basically, they bought the rights to the book on, okay, according to Colin McCarthy, they bought the rights on January 12th, 1953. 
And then shooting began April 15th. Okay. And so if the book was purchased on January 12th and shooting, oh, I'm sorry, shooting was completed on April 15th. So if the, so shooting began on March 17th, that means the screenwriter had to have been hired, have drafted by January 20th, a version and then redrafted and had the script approved all within two months. And then they shot it and got it done. And then they didn't even bother to release it till October because they had bigger fish to fry with this from here to eternity thing. Uh, I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? But it shows you how, like, even a movie like The Big Heat, which was technically was it was it was a it was a two picture thing. You know, it, there was it was technically the A movie, and then there was a B movie that was shown with it. But technically, they were both kind of the B movies. You know what I mean? Like they were the ones where it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah let's get some profit into here. And it's just interesting to see a place like Columbia Pictures where they really, they did just kind of get every little bit out of everything they could. And, uh, you know, apparently Fritz Lang was able to get that stuff for him in a timely way and keep it under budget. And, but anyway, at the time, it was not considered a very prestige movie. It got some reviews. Most people are like, oh, it's got that violent scene with the coffee. And then that was kind of it for a long time. Other than like Francois Truffaut and a couple of these French guys who loved it, it was kind of considered just, I don't want to say trash, but just kind of a yeah, B movie, I guess. Yeah. And now it's like it's hugely regarded. Oh, yeah. And I definitely have read about its kind of resurgence. Uh, not recently. I mean, it's happened over time. Sure. But that, you know, the critical acclaim that it, totally deserves and and gets pretty much uh, today was not instantaneous. It was kind of a, uh, a build-up for sure. And honestly, film noir is a precursor, I would say, to exploitation in general. Like, it's not the exact same kind of ethos, so to speak, because mm-hmm. I don't think film noir, while it was pulpy and certainly had promises of a uh, dark and seedy world it was less i think uh, concerned with the content as it was with the visuals and uh, certainly the the mood mm-hmm. so but i you know its roots being in those novels and and pulp stories and whatnot certainly is you can draw a line from that to the emergence of exploitation pictures of the 60s 70s and 80s like you know because pretty much film noir died out just before these those movies started to exist so mm-hmm. you know the absence of one created a hole for the other to fill for sure so they're definitely re- related yeah like you said i feel like there is a line you can draw and, and of course a lot of it comes down to technology too like things got a little cheaper like for instance so many exploitation films they shoot on location outside they didn't have sets yeah and that was true of a lot of the film noirs where it was like okay we're gonna film outside and it essentially became part of its own aesthetic was just out of necessity. Yeah. So, all right, let's go into final ratings. I'm going to go first, and then I'm going to hand it off to you. Uh, I think this movie is fantastic. Um, it's probably my favorite film noir. Um, mm. I haven't seen a lot, so I definitely want to see more to really broaden that horizon. But it's really tough to beat. And most of that really comes down to Fritz Lang's direction. I mean, I think he... Uh, really takes that kind of domestic tranquility to task in this very insidious plot um, as one man essentially tries to pretend that it's 
not as bad as it is and mm. it's much worse than he feared and and i think it's fantastic all the way through i um i mean i have some qualms a little bit with the last 10 to 20 minutes because of the moral ramifications that are not quite probed and maybe due to some of the turnarounds on the characters but mm. by and large uh in general when it matters uh it, it's it's gold and it's it's so good at what it does and I could watch this repeatedly for sure. So uh, for me, it's four and a half out of five. It's probably never going to be in my personal canon, but I also can't think of anything uh, this movie does wrong. Uh, I think it's just a dynamite <laughs> picture. Um, and let me just say. Um, how amazing the final line of this movie is considering <laughs> it's not underscored you know like the end has almost already cropped up on which is actually a very unique ending because the end just kind of fades in mm. as the picture is still going uh with action in the foreground and usually movies of this time want more of a you know cut you know not necessarily cut to but either a like the action has completely come to a standstill or we've turned the mic off of what we're watching. So therefore we can focus on the swelling, but here it's like the hustle and the bustle of that final scene in the squadron is actually still front and center, even when the movie is essentially ending and, and the end crops up. But for the final line, which does not uh, get a, an underline of, of him saying, keep the coffee hot, Hugo <laughs> is just, one of the sickest jokes uh, you can make at, at the end of this movie, and I, I absolutely love it. Uh, it's so good. So, yeah, four and a half out of five for me. I agree with you, though. Most movies of the time, they would kind of put a little, they put a button on the end. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just like it, it faded out, like while he's walking out the door, and there's a little poster back there that says, Give blood! You know, I mean, it, it is kind of an unusual ending. Uh, like I said, uh, Colin MacArthur says, Oh, it's just like the nightmare starts again. It's just a cycle. Yeah. You know, so for him, he thinks it's a super bleak ending where it's like, All right, keep the coffee hot, Hugo, because uh, we're going to be seeing more horrible shit. Mm hmm. As for me, um, I, I, it's just so tightly made, and it's probably one of my favorite movies in which I'm not a huge fan of the lead character. Like, I mean, the lead actor, I should say. Yeah. He does everything right, but it's usually I have um, a more passionate feeling towards the lead actor in a movie that I love this much. But it's just one of those rare exceptions where I think he does a very good job and he quits himself fine. But it's really the film itself, and and again, some of the other supporting, like Gloria Graham, I mean, Lee Marvin, those guys, that, that really helped just raise this thing up. So, I, I give it five stars. Hell yeah. So, that is Saxon the City's presentation of The Big Heat. But uh, i got a little solo for you following that, and uh, it's time for us to sing the opening notes of... The A-List. Mm -hmm. Did you drink in those notes? I know I sure did. Oh, I imbibed deeply. Mm. We here at Sex in the City are taking a cue from our mother, Project Exploitation, and we're doing a segment we like to call 
the A-list. And if you don't know what the A-list is now, let's wrap a little bit and we'll explain it. You see, normally in project exploitation, we're talking about what we call B-movies, uh, you know, rough and tumble pics of that era. And uh, what we like to do is pair it up with a more either well-known or critically acclaimed film. That's why we call it the A-list, because it's the A-list to the SB picture. Now, obviously, here in Saxon, the city, well, the notes are a little different, baby. You can't always uh, see where this one's going to go, so... <laughs> While we may not be talking about a quote-unquote unknown movie, like The Big Heat, we're still going to try to pair it with something. So I think this is probably even more open-ended than normal. But uh, what say you, Dan? What would you pick as your A-list choice? Well, you know, it kind of came to me in a flash. Uh, I was watching, uh, I've probably seen Big Heat like five or six times now. I mean, I've, I've seen it three times just recently. And you know how I like to ship from my main man, Tony Scott. So I, there's this very deliberate matter of factness where Banyan's leaving the commissioner's office. And they're like, what are you going to do? And he's like, I'm going to kill the people responsible for my wife's murder. And, he, and it's so pithy. And, and you know, he just leaves right afterwards. It reminded me of Tony Scott's Man on Fire, 2004, Denzel Washington. Oh, yeah. The Creasy Bear. Creasy. Yeah. The Creasy Bear's art is murder and he's about to do his mess now i'm sorry that's a terrible walking impression anyway <laughs> but there's a part where they think uh dakota fanning you know lupita has been killed and so lupita's mom i think her name's rika is talking to creasy and she's like so what are you gonna do and creasy's like what i do best i'm gonna kill them uh and he's like anyone that was involved anybody who profited from it anybody who opens their eyes at me and he does just that. And it is an incredibly satisfying revenger, even though he goes a little overboard and it's a just so story that makes it so that he's justified. But it's just such a damn good movie. And it gets more and more unhinged as it goes. Um, the graphics get weirder. The subtitles start to like fly off the screen sometimes, or, or it's just really, really bizarre. It, it shows Tony Scott, I think, at a really exciting moment in his artistic development. When I, when I include this in like Domino, uh, Deja Vu, and, you know, those movies around that time, I, I just, I feel like he was just like, screw it. What do I have to lose now? I've already done my Hollywood movies. I'm going to do it in the way that I've never seen it done before. And I, I think that's just what makes Man on Fire such a great movie. So, Tony Scott's Man on Fire. Oh, yeah. I have not seen that in a while. I watched it when it first came out, and I was probably like 13 or 14. So, as a youngin, that was a very cool R-rated movie to watch, you know, because there was some pretty extreme bouts of violence in there. Hell yes. Yeah, I remember even if I kind of think back on it are actually pretty graphic for even for Tony Scott. Like True. he was always making like R-rated fare, but there's some torture scenes in there that are uh, pretty gruesome uh, in a gnarly way. So that's a, that's a great choice. Uh, oh, thank you. I am going to pair the big heat with a little film from 1997 directed by James Mangold. I'm talking about the movie Copland. Oh, nice. You know, I first of all, I just think it's underrated, which I know is kind of a meaningless word these days, but in general. No, but you're right. You know, we, we don't talk about that movie enough, I think, because I think it's fantastic. And I, um, while there's really nothing to do with the mob, uh, you know, it's certainly obviously a story in which one cop 
is being told not to pursue something and you can't really, you know, follow that directive. <laughs> and, you know, it's got different outcomes, uh, you know, from this movie to that movie. Um, but it's really about generally decent uh, men who are just fed up with the way that the police system has been co-opted by other influences and other agendas and whatnot. And, you know, even Sylvester Stallone, who I don't think is a good actor. I mean, I, not that mm-hmm. I even think that that's like controversial, but like even something like Rocky, I'm like, you're technically playing a person who's gotten punched so many times that I guess I believe that <laughs> this performance, you know, whatever, but even that, whatever. Yeah. But in Copland, I think that's the finest performance he's ever given, um, where he's actually trying and he's not playing himself. Mm-hmm. And it, it really does come down to that, too, because he has to stand tall against all these charismatic actors, you know, opposite of him, whether it's Harvey Keitel or Robert De Niro. And honestly, that whole movie really does thread the line very well. I mean, you know, it's funny because people call it a neo-noir, but it's really a neo-noir Western because, Mm -hmm. you know, he is literally a sheriff. And, you know, I think the last scene, I believe, not the last scene, but the the climax, you know, is quite literally him kind of walking into a mob, you know, the same way that you would back in the old West, you know, when you come to address the community, not just the villain and how it's a very public display of repudiation. So Mm. for me, I I think Copland, the fantastic movie that doesn't get quite enough love, but also is, um, it would be a nice counterpiece, I think, to the big heat. They're not like similar films, where they would be mistaken for one another or like or remakes of or whatever, but they share enough in common that I think that would be an interesting double billing. That sounds killer. I would love that. Well, you know, it's funny in a way, uh, Sylvester Stallone's Freddy character is a guy who's been looking the other way his whole life. And finally he's just like, Nope. And yeah, that final gunfight for lack of a better word. I mean, you mentioned it's kind of a Western mm-hmm. yeah. of him trudging up the hill with the shotgun. And he's, he's literally, he can't hear anything in either ear. Cause um, one of his ears. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He was deaf in one ear. And then they shot the, right in front of the other with the muzzle. So you're just hearing this. And you know, he's walking up and Robert Patrick's like, what the fuck are you doing? Freddie? get back. And you just hear this muffled. And he's like, I'm going to get, you know, and it's, I mean, it's just such a profoundly, uh, well choreographed moment, especially with uh, Ray Liotta. I mean, I love him coming in at the end. Uh, there's a scene where Ray Liotta is like driving away at the end. Well, before, you know, and he's looking in the rearview mirror and he's like, shut up. <clears throat> Will you shut the fuck up? And he's talking to himself. He's like, his his conscience is getting him. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, man, love that movie. Love James Mangold. Yeah. And the ending, you know, spoilers if you haven't seen it, but the ending is similar in the sense that it's really like he sticks to his guns as far as just wanting to turn them in, basically, and to end it. You know, people do die, but that's because shots are fired at him and whatnot. But mm-hmm. all the way up to, and, you know, especially after you had mentioned the fact that they literally go after the one thing that is probably the most punishing thing they could do short of killing him, which mm-hmm. is to try to make him go deaf in his other ear. And all that you know, notwithstanding, he still tries to walk the the road of actual policing. And it's a, it's a good movie. Yeah, it's like you said about High Noon. It is very like that. And yeah. It's interesting because that scene in uh, The Big Heat where Banyan throws down his badge. 
Um, it really reminded me of the very end of, of High Noon, which I think had only been released like six months before this big heat started being written. So it feels like they're part of a continuum. Yeah. Well, those are our picks for the A-list here on Sex in the City. Mm. So I got to put this baby back in his case because uh, <laughs> the sun's about to rise. But uh, well, I don't know. Maybe next time you're here, maybe stick around for a little bit. You know, Project Exploitation ain't going anywhere and mm. neither is Sex in the City. So from myself... Tricky Nick Cheney and my partner in crime and uh, my friend in time, Dan Babylon Brooks. We want to say thank you for uh, sitting down and inviting. Look out for uh, the next episode of Project Exploitation where we go to a whole new world. Max, I, I don't have an end.